0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I bring you a message today from the people of Ireland. The Irish desire peace with England and with the rest of the world. It is a question of a republic. We want the creation of a new Ireland. I wish to talk to you this evening about the state of the nation's affairs. I I wish to talk to you this evening. Welcome to the History of Ireland. George Orwell. Once described Speaker's Corner in the northeast of Hyde Park as one of the minor wonders of the world. Started in 1870 after a series of protests, it's a peculiar spot where anyone can get on a soapbox and share any and all ideas without worry of arrest. For nearly 150 years, it's been a bit of a bastion of free speech, packed full of, as Orwell puts it, Everything from Indian nationalists, temperance reformers, communists, Trotskyists, the Socialist Party of Great Britain, the Catholic Evidence Society, free thinkers, vegetarians, Mormons, the Salvation Army, the Church Army, and a large variety of plain lunatics. It's been pretty much continuously going since 1870. So admittedly, right at the moment, it's probably a little quieter than usual, thanks to a certain virus you may have heard about. I mention Speaker's Corner because it's at this little spot where today's story begins. You see, over the next two episodes, I want to focus back on the intelligence side of the war and explore what was going on in the shadows in the early part of 1920. As we've discussed, throughout 1919, the G Division had taken quite the beating from the IRA. They were struggling. But the British had not given up. In early 1920, they began shipping new detectives in, and pushing back against the IRA. It wasn't be really enough though, and by March of 1920, the G Division was all but finished. And, that's all thanks to one portly communist, who got involved with the Irish at Speaker's Corner. In 1920, amongst the crazy preachers and reformists, you had Art O'Brien and Sean McGrath, the President and General Secretary of the Irish Self-Determination League. The two men used Speaker's Corner to spread the message of an Irish Republic, loudly and enthusiastically, I would imagine. The Irish Self-Determination League was a Sinn Féin propaganda group aimed at raising funds and creating sympathy for the Irish cause. As well as this, it facilitated introductions between Irish nationalists in Britain. Art O'Brien, the leader, was also a member of the IRB and therefore had quite close ties to Michael Collins. He would scope men out, and anyone he thought useful would be introduced to the big fellow. And this is exactly what they used Speaker's Corner for. The busy loud street corner packed full of various factions of everything from Bolsheviks to the Judeans People's Front was the perfect location to find those unsatisfied with the status quo. It was here at the Speaker's Corner it said that O'Brien first met John Jameson. Jameson was a short, overweight, 40-something-year-old bird-watching enthusiast, described as having piercing black eyes and a ruddy complexion. He doesn't sound like much, but he's at the center of one of the more interesting stories of the period. As well as being a bird-watching enthusiast, he was also heavily involved with unions and was a bit of a communist. He was most likely introduced to Ida O'Brien by a man named Thomas J. McElligot had been sent over to London by Collins to sow discord among the British police. Jameson wanted to help. He explained that his father was born in Limerick and that he had become disaffected with the whole British Empire after fighting in the war. He came back and found a job earning a living as a sales representative for a theatre ticket distributor. He was sympathetic to Sinn Féin, the Bolsheviks and the unions and wanted to help the Irish war effort in any way he could. He impressed Art O'Brien by coming up with a plan to incite mutiny within the British forces in Ireland. And he convinced Art that he could get arms and ammunition into the country. But he insisted he would only discuss the details of his plan with senior IRA men. Art was impressed with Jameson and decided that Collins should meet him. Collins was always keen to find new ways of getting arms, but equally knew he was a wanted man and was very, very careful with who he sat down with. Anyone who got to meet Collins was furiously vetted. But hey, that was Art's job. So, on one of his trips to London, Collins met with Jameson, but never actually revealed his identity. I imagine Jameson believed he was meeting with Art and a few other Sinn Féin men. I can picture Collins sitting off to the side, slowly taking measure of the man in front of him, as Jameson ran through his plans with Art and the others. He explained that with his job as a ticket distributor, he was able to travel between Ireland and England without causing suspicion. And with his ex-army and communist links, he will be able to supply the IRA with guns. Collins liked the sound of this, and liked Jameson. He came across as a friendly, intelligent man. And so Collins decided to invite him over to Ireland. A little while later, Jameson travelled to Dublin and a second meeting with Collins was organised though Jameson believed he was meeting Collins for the first time, remember. He was blindfolded and taken to a safe house by an IRA escort who informed him he was, quote, meeting the greatest man Ireland has ever produced, greater even than De Valera. In a safe house somewhere in Dublin, Jameson was introduced to Collins and some of the GHQ. Over dinner he explained that he had a friend who worked in the British government and that he could potentially lay hands on the secret war office communication code basically the cipher the British used to transfer orders in the army. Collins was impressed. Writing to Art O'Brien, he said, Jameson has duly arrived and been interviewed by three of us. I shall report developments later on. However, not everyone who met Jameson that night trusted him. Tom Collins, the assistant director of intelligence, took an immediate dislike to Jameson, describing him as a crooked English bastard. From here on in, things start getting interesting. Colin spoke to Liam Tobin. You'll remember Tobin from our episode on the information game. He was head of the IRA Intelligence Network and very quickly came to mistrust Jameson as well. He, Colin, and Joe O'Reilly, another intelligence officer, tried to convince Collins to be more careful around Jameson. But Collins dismissed him. He liked Jameson and instead organized another lunch, making his intelligence officers even more uneasy. The second meeting was held at the home of Mrs. Bridget O'Connor. Bridget's husband, Bat, was a builder who owned homes that Collins used as safe houses throughout Dublin. He'd equipped them with secret cubby holes and escape routes through skylights. Pretty cool stuff. Anyway, it's said Collins trusted Bridget O'Connor's judge of character, and wanted her to meet Jameson. The Englishman was brought in, sat down, and served lunch. They made more plans to ferry arms, and Collins agreed to introduce Jameson to Richard Mulcahy and Cahill Brewer the next day, which was a pretty big deal. Once lunch was over, Liam Tobin and Jameson left, while Collins stayed behind to discuss the man with Bridget. Apparently, she, like Tobin and Cullen, also disliked Jameson. And look, Collins should have listened to his advisors. The next day, James McNamara, Collins' spy in the G-Division at the time, soon discovered that Bridget O'Connor's house had been under surveillance for the entirety of the lunch with Jameson. That's when Collins began to take his intelligence officers a little more seriously. He didn't toss out Jameson immediately, but did make him a counterintelligence priority. Tobin and his staff assigned him the codename Corrie and began digging up anything they could find on the man. And well, the first thing they uncovered was that John Jameson had absolutely no link To any theatre ticket agency. We don't know whether or not Jameson knew that Tobin was suspicious of him, but at this point he returned to London, promising to come back to Dublin with guns and the War Office communication code. But in London things went from bad to worse for Jameson. At this point I'm sure you can see where this is going. And so I want to introduce Basil Thompson. Basil Thompson was the British Director of Intelligence in 1920. I highly urge you, if you have 10 minutes or so, check out his Wikipedia page. It's crazy. Born in Oxford, over the course of his career he wrote several books in Fijian and Tongan, he ran a prison and then took over Scotland Yard, where he gained a reputation as a quote spy catcher during World War I. He was anti suffragette and wrote anti-Semitic articles for dodgy newspaper. Once, he interrogated a Dutch exotic dancer who turned out to be a German spy, and he was involved in raising public awareness of Roger Caseman's quote-unquote black diaries. Side note within a side note, Caseman is an awesome Irish figure, and maybe one day we'll go back and look at his time raising awareness for indigenous rights in Peru. Anyway, I better stay focused. At this point in our narrative, Basil Thompson was basically M, in charge of all the UK's intelligence operations. Lloyd George looked to him to combat the IRA's increasingly successful intelligence operations. And Thompson put together a quote, clever dangle operation, intended to locate Michael Collins and penetrate his organization. Thompson's plan was to use one of his agents who had previously buried himself within communist groups, which Thompson knew were friendly to the Irish nationalists, and have him infiltrate the inner circles of Sinn Féin and the IRA. Can you see where this is going? But unfortunately for Thompson, Collins had impressively one offed him, as is made clear by a note found after Collins' death. It was written to Art O'Brien and said the following. Jameson. What I have to say in regard with him will probably be somewhat of a thunderbolt to you. I believe we have the man or one of them. I have absolute certain information that the man who came from London met and spoke to me, reported that I was growing a moustache to Pazel Thompson. I may get some more information a moustache, a thunderbolt of information. You see, Collins had managed to plant a source within Thompson's office. And so when our friendly communist, John Jameson, reported back to Thompson, Collins's source rushed to inform him. Fascinatingly, to this day, we have no idea who Collins had in the office of Britain's head of intelligence. But the fact that he had anyone is frankly amazing. As military historian J.B.E. Hiddle writes, it was, quote, a remarkable feat for a revolutionary intelligence service operated by an underground chief and a staff on the run. So that was that. John Jameson's cover was blown. In fact, John Jameson had never really existed. Which raises the question, who the hell was the short, overweight, 40-something-year-old bird-watching enthusiast promising to get guns to the IRA. Well, like any good spy story, we're going to leave it on a cliffhanger. Tune in next time to uncover the man behind John Jameson. I really should have some spy music kick in about now or something, but oh well, we'll stick with the trod. Thanks for listening. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you're enjoying it, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or tell your friends. It really helps. You can also get in touch and support the show through our website, thehistoryofireland.com, or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Always great hearing from you guys. And if I've made a mistake, please do let me know. The History of Ireland was written and produced by me, Kevin Dole. Additional research and fact-checking by Robert Babington, music by Liam Doyle, and production help from Aoife Murphy. This podcast was recorded in the lands of the Wurundjeri people as a Kulin Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded.